Before we begin, just giving you an update on our new subscription. It's called Dave McWilliams Plus on Apple. You just double click, you get no ads, and you get me and John, pure and simple. And Mac, you get early access episodes. Did you know that? Sure. My day is made. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. How are you doing there? It is podcast time. It is late August. John is getting the recurring trauma and fear of back to school, which he always had as a young fellow. I do remember the last... Yes. <laughs> remember that one? It's deep. It's deep, deep in my psyche. I always... Do you know what's interesting? I always saw September as the new year as opposed to January because it was... You know, you start afresh in a new year in school and God knows what's going to happen in the year ahead. Did you know, John Davis, that you share this perception of September being the first year of the new year with the French revolutionaries who actually well, had hey. a had a 10 month year? The final month was the Thermidor, which was the hot month, which was yeah. August. And then they started again. So you, Robespierre, Danton, all those geezers had something in common and... As luck would have it, we're going to talk exactly about not the French Revolution, but financing revolutions, financing the Irish Revolution, because the French financed their revolution using Talleyrand. Remember we spoke about Talleyrand, yes. who Napoleon described as filth in silk stockings. The tax man, wasn't he? He was the tax man. Well, he was, do you know what he was? Talleyrand, amazingly. He was a former archbishop who became a Lothario, who had many, many kids. He worked as the finance minister of the revolution as the foreign minister of Napoleon. And then when Napoleon got hosed, Talleyrand was on the other side and went to work for the new king. So he was a complete and right. utter, and utter a player, right? And, and but, he was the guy who said that the art was plucking the feathers from the goose without making it hiss. That's exactly that what that's not. That wasn't Talleyrand. That was... Jean Colbert, who was the finance minister of Louis XIV about 50 years before. But Talleyrand took that as being ah, essential. Okay, okay, okay. Cut that so one Jean right. Colbert was the hissing goose was his approach to taxation. Right, but right, what right, I want right. to talk about is financing revolutions. Because Michael Collins, who we're going to talk about today. So Michael Collins, Irish people will know as the first leader of this country, the victor in the War of Independence, the victor in the Civil War, the man who was going to change Ireland but was assassinated at 31 years old this week, 100 years ago. So we want to mark the economics of Michael Collins. Now, interestingly, for American listeners, Alexander Hamilton was your Michael Collins. So Alexander Hamilton, 
wrote much of the American Constitution, as did Collins, the Irish Constitution. He was a significant player in the Continental Congress, which was the forerunner to the parallel government against the Brits. Collins, of course, was a major player in our parallel government against the Brits, 1918 to 1921, we're talking about here. And like Hamilton, Collins was not obsessed with, but concerned with the economy because he knew that a state needed to be funded, a state needed to be set up. You can imagine what these guys were going through, right? Yeah. They were trying to fight an insurrection, but they also knew if they lost, they'd all be shot. They'd all be, they would all have been shot, right? If yeah. they won, they had to set up a state from scratch. Because don't forget, when Britain left Ireland, like any post-colonial situation, they don't just take their soldiers and their infrastructure, they take their money as well. Yeah. So the state is yeah. left with no money. So how do you actually finance a revolution? How do you then win the revolution? How do you finance a revolution without hyperinflation as well, which is very important and quite topical? Then having won the revolution, how do you actually build an entire nation? How do you get money in? Can you create a bond market? Can you create a banking system? How do you persuade people to keep their money in? How do you attract in foreign investment if you need foreign investment? How do you galvanize the resources of the country that have been undermined for many years by yeah. the colonial power? I mean, it's a fantastic story. So we're going to tell the story today, which is an international story. And the reason I say it's international, that we are marking the 100th anniversary of the death of Michael Collins, the assassination of Michael Collins, the murder of Michael Collins, if you will, around the same time as the Indians are celebrating the 70th anniversary of the emergence of the Indian state. And amazingly, Nehru, the revolutionary leader of India and the first prime minister of India and the head of the Congress party, spent time in Dublin because his cousin was in the College of Surgeons right. yeah. and wrote home to his father about he was so impressed by these Sinn Feiners because they had a path to victory that they'd figured out and that India needed to follow the same path. So the 70-year-old Indian Republic the 100-year-old, not so much Irish Republic, which it is, or Irish Free State, the assassination of Michael Collins this week, 100 years ago, are all in the mix. And part of the issue is, how do you finance revolution? That is our podcast today. And John, we're going to do this, the economics of Michael Collins in two batches. First up, my old mate, Paddy Cullivan, one of the greats, who has a show, a sold-out show, going through the country all next week, and all, actually all next month, called... Yeah the murder of Michael Collins. Then we're going to move down to Killarney to talk to Patrick O'Sullivan-Green, who has written extensively, written a book called Crowdfunding the Revolution. And this is all about Collins's banking, his finance, his bonds, his figuring the whole thing out. But I'm delighted to now introduce to the podcast an old, old friend of mine. Paddy Cullivan and I, Many, many years ago, you might be going to Electric Picnic now, and you might think Electric Picnic always looked like this. But the very first Electric Picnic, I think it was 2004, Paddy Cullivan and I and a fellow called Nisha Nunn decided to put up a thing called Leviathan, Nisha's idea, which was a tent, comedy, cabaret, music, politics, and economics tent. That tent was in the arse end of Electric Picnic. Very few people turned up. Over the years, it has grown and grown. It is now Minefield, which is Nisha's baby. And Paddy, for the first time, is on the show. He also has an extraordinary show called The Murder of Michael Collins, which I 
urge you all to have a look at, to go to. We'll talk about that in a second. Paddy, great to see you. How are you? Great to see you, Dave. Love that tent in the arse end. I'm still in the arse end, but that's where I like to be. I like to be on the outside, man. I'm an outsider. I'm an outsider. <laughs> Tell us now, listen, Paddy, when you're not doing Camembert Quartet and all that sort of people, you might know Paddy from being the lead man of the Camembert Quartet that used to play. Wow, how many years were you doing the Late Late? We did five years on Tuberty Tonight and 10 years on the Late Late. And when, once we got that gig, we made an album called the Camembert Quartet Sellout. And I've been selling out ever since. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Paddy, talk to me about Michael Collins. Well, I, look, all my life I was fascinated with history, but also the, the weird bits of history, like the JFK assassination, things like that, that people seem to not want to talk about. And the one thing about Collins, you'll find that his death is a thing we're talking about now, but generally people like to leave it alone. It's a weird thing in Ireland where we go, respect the dead, you know, let it lie. Should the poor man, he died in an ambush and we'll never know what happened. And I had to explore this and see, why are we doing this? Because we did this with church scandals. We, we do this in Ireland where we kind of go, just bury it deep down, let it just fester until it kills you. That's what we do in Ireland. We don't like to talk about stuff. And I, I just wanted to open the whole thing up. So I made the show, The Murder of Michael Collins. It's a controversial title because funny enough, Republicans and free staters hate me for this show. That's a great place to be, by the way. Yeah, yeah. Republicans hate me because I'm saying it was a murder and they're going, no, it was a legitimate attack and ambush and he died as a casualty in the civil war at Bail and the Blanc. Uh, free staters don't like it because they're going, well, you know, we failed utterly. He had, he had a bodyguard of 25 men going into Bail and on the 22nd of August. Five guys attacked him with a couple of handguns and rifles. 25 men are there to protect him. And yet not one of them die. And the commander in chief of the whole country, the most famous man in Ireland, most famous man and Irishman in the world is brought back dead. What the hell happened? And that's what the whole story is about. I'm going to come back to you on the murder. I want to go back 10, 15 years before the murder to the 18, 19 year old Collins. Where is he? What's he thinking about? Well, Collins is born in 1890. His father's 75 years old when he's born. So that there's hope for all of us lads. Wow. And, um, John, John is perking up straight away. Very good. It, it's the, the, the way I open the show, it's very positive. It goes downhill after that. Very like, <laughs> late, very like a late, late show. And then you know, it starts off well, and then you're depressed out of your mind by the end of it. But, <laughs> but basically, Collins, when he's 16, moves to London, moves in with his sister, Hanny, starts working in the post office in the financial division. So for the entire 10 years before 1916, Collins is this incredible character. In 1909, Sam Maguire, the Protestant Republican, swears him into the IRB. Now, the IRB is an organization that goes beyond Sinn Féin, beyond the volunteers, anybody. These guys think they're the legitimate rulers of, of Ireland. So, you know, he starts spying. He meets members of high society through Hanny, people like Moy Llewellyn Davies, Crompton Llewellyn Davies. Crompton Llewellyn Davies is the boss in the post office of the financial division. And when you think about the post office, that was the communications network of the British Empire. This guy is getting in at a bottom level, spying on what the, the Brits are doing. He's hanging out with Crompton Welland Davies, who isn't just Moyla Welland Davies' uh, husband and his boss, but he's also best friend and election agent for Lloyd George. So, so these, are, these are these powerful Welsh people who were taking over England at the time. Yes, but I mean, in, by 1910, he's two heartbeats away from, from Lloyd George. Man. From, yeah, who'll be he'll be negotiating with 11 years hence. So this guy, we're, we're always presented this image of Michael Collins as being this kind of, you know, farm boy made good, you know, where Brendan Gleeson, you know, wrestling fellas at the floor and biting their ears and Jesus, wasn't he great at the old <laughs> War of Independence? No, this man is more like James Bond. And he's going to do anything in and out of bed to, to unite Ireland. He's going to 
hang out with Fabian socialists in high British society years before the Easter Rising even happened. So this guy is James Bond. This so guy the Fabian socialists, just so we know, they're George Bernard Shaw's crowd. They are deeply yeah. intellectual. They want a social, they want this, how would you describe the Fabians? Just give us context. Yes, I, I, I said Fabian socialists down in Cork and people got annoyed and said, what is a Fabian socialist? And they were right because you should explain it. A Fabian socialist is something like Tony Blair. It's a rich person who wants socialism, but far enough away that it doesn't affect their income. Precisely. Okay? Yeah, we, we know the type. Uh, so Blair, it's like a labor politician sending their kids to private school. Exactly. Yeah, they, they, okay. they, they want. They want yeah, we have a few of them. They want socialism, but they want it far enough away that it doesn't affect them. <laughs> so, but in the early 20s or the early teens of, of the century, the Fabian socialists, people like Lloyd George, Lloyd George introduced the old age pension. These guys were very progressive. And Collins is hanging out with these people. So, I mean, I know Fine Gael would like us to think that Collins was some kind of, you know, Fine Gaeler ex-banker type who wanted to retire to the Burnaby with Kitty Kiernan and live high on the hog. The Burnaby guy, by the way, is a posh housing estate built in 1903 in Greystones for ex-bankers. Now, yeah. let's keep going on. And yeah. by the way, if you're not from Ireland, Greystones is a reasonably swanky village about 20 miles south of Dublin. JM knows all about that. Yeah, yeah exactly. I, grew up, I grew up in Greystones for five years I, when I was spying on, on, on them myself, Dave, just so you know. <laughs> and um, no, the Burnaby is a famous housing estate. Of course, Dev's family lived in the Burnaby during the whole War of Independence. And Michael Collins used to cycle out and bring the money and stuff. So he was very friendly with the Deb's family and kids and everything like that. He was a brilliant guy. But so let's go back. Him. Let's go back to London. Let's go back to the formative years. Yeah, so he's a radical. He, he's an absolutely radical Republican. People forget this about Collins. He, he's hanging out with these people. He's also hanging out with the Gaelic League and learning gun skills and all the rest, but joins the volunteers in 1914. But that's five years after he's doing this immense work, spying on the British establishment, immersing himself in the British establishment, and even in 1915 goes to work for J.P. Morgan and, you know, sees the bond scheme that funds World War I, uses that bond scheme to fund or crowdfund the War of Independence. The man's a genius, as far as I can see. Comes back and just becomes a captain in the 1916 Rising, sees the futility of sitting in buildings and waiting for the Brits to bomb you out of them, and actually says personally that he, he hadn't much time for Pierce, but he would follow Connolly to hell if he asked him. So this idea... That's of, interesting. You know, so Connolly yeah, was his mate. Connolly was his, his, his go-to. And this is the funny thing. We're going to be sold a big bag of goods this year about Collins being the, the right-winger, the Fine Gaeler. I'd just like to let everyone know, Collins died 10 years before Fine Gael was formed under the leadership of Owen O'Duffy. And he died eight months before Cumann Gael was formed. Collins lived and died a member of Sinn Féin. And that's the end of it. Well clarified. Let's keep going. No, but I think you're absolutely right, because, I mean, the great thing you said at the start, Irish people tend to bury stuff and not talk about it. We also tend to bury stuff and reinvent it as our own myth. And that's well, very clear it. that all the 1916 fellas, all the independence, war of independence, civil war fellas, it's all reinvention. Completely. And in fact, they, 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 being Republicans, they invent their own royalty. You know, who deserves a pension? Who did the most work? You know, we shouldn't have gone down that road. It was all about equality. But the funniest thing about the way we approach history and why I did this show is, I call it the three rules of Irish history, right? So we know nothing about what happened to Collins. There's no forensic or ballistic stuff, but it's all about what fellas said. But our history in Ireland is all about what fe one fella said. And so I call it the, I knew a fella who knew a fella. That's the first rule of Irish history. So every time you talk to someone about history, you say, my auntie knows who died. Or my, <laughs> aunt, 
my, my auntie used to bring a bottle of whiskey to him every day. He was a drunkard, you know. Now, you'll have this whole thing where Collins died because he was foolhardy and he, he was careless and he never was in a gun battle. He owned 21 handguns. The man did rifle training in 2014. The man completely knew his way around weapons and he completely got involved in stuff. So we've lied to ourselves. Then the second thing is um, let it lie. You know, don't speak ill of the dead. That's the other thing we do in Ireland. You know, Ash, we'll never know it'll be grand. And then the last one is heroic failure. So we have heroic failure because all our rebellions failed. You know, and the only one that succeeded really with any measure was the one that Collins negotiated, which is getting us a measure of freedom. I'm an anti-treaty person, but I now see the sense in it because of what happened afterwards, which was once Collins died, everything just went into stasis. It's like it froze. The South froze, the North froze. They didn't even talk to each other for, you know, until the 1960s when it was too late. So I see the point of it. But heroic failure is a funny thing where we, we big ourselves up in this country, you know, about our achievements and what we did, you know. So I call it the Italian 90s-ification of Irish history. Where, <laughs> it, it, where Collins is Paul McGrath sort of thing. Well, well something like that. If, if, you know, if you look at the actual results of Italian 90, you know, three draws, getting a penalty shootout by the seat of our arse, and then kicked out of the tournament. It doesn't sound great on paper, does it, lads? No, but it was very heroic. But the it, way we sell it is... It we won the World Cup. In Irish history... And we won the World Cup, as far as I can go. <laughs> no one remembers that Ireland didn't win the World Cup and that Germany won it. Yeah. We won the World Cup. Now, that's what we do with our history. So we big up somebody. So let's say take somebody like Collins, a brilliant man, a total militant, who also wrote a constitution, a total merciless kind of genius, tactical genius, who also decided to become a leader and negotiate peace. He is far more in common with Martin McGuinness than anybody else. But you would, if you said that in the South, it drive, would drive the establishment mad. But that's really who he resembles. Do you know what I mean? But instead, what we did after he died is the newspapers. I, in my show, I do a whole thing on the newspapers. You know, he, he had four last words. Forgive them. Bury me in Glasnevin with the boys. Dalton. And, um, you know, no reprisals. These are the four words he's meant to say when he had a bullet wound that killed him in a tenth of a second. There's no way he could have said any of that stuff. And yet the papers print it. We start to hagiography the guy. We start to make him what I call a mantelpiece martyr, where he goes up on the wall with John Paul II, JFK, and Jesus getting open heart surgery, otherwise known as the Sacred Heart. And, <laughs> so you know what I mean? We've turned him into this martyr who was only into peace. I've shown my show that he was planning a massive invasion of the North. And one of the reasons he dies is because he's become a pain to absolutely everybody, including his own cabinet, the Brits, and the anti-treaty side. John M. Regan beautifully puts it about Collins. The reason there was no crisis after his death is possibly because Collins was the crisis. Fascinating. Now, yeah. I want to ask you before we go, because this is the great tour de force, but I want to, uh, who do you think killed him? I have to be very honest in my show, because a lot of historians are given out to me and people are ringing me. People are ringing me anonymously, Dave, and saying, it was Sonny O'Neill. You could have taken that shot now from 20 yards with one hand tied behind his back. I found out that the guy that they've been trying to blame for years, Sonny O'Neill, had a terrible wound in his right arm, 40% disability, and was never a sniper and marksman. There's no proof he was ever a sniper, and yet that's how he's described for 100 years. Elmet Dalton was British intelligence before and after Colin's death, and yet he's treated like he's some kind of star. He even made a movie in Ardmore about the whole thing in 1950s. Unbelievable stuff. Like You've got to go to this show to see a history you've never known. I have to say, though, I refuse to say who killed him because there's no evidence. There was no inquest. There was no inquiry. There was no autopsy. Well, there was an autopsy, but it was burned. Collins didn't even have a death cert. There's something very mysterious about the most famous man in the world, 
uh, the most famous Irishman in the world, the, the most powerful Irishman. He was Minister of Finance, President and Commander-in-Chief of the country, of the military. He dies within eight months of taking power. And, and he was 34. Wants, 31. He was 31. Wants, yeah, nobody wants to talk about it. I, I laugh because a lot of people say, oh, he was in ill health. He didn't know what he was doing. He was in ill health. His kidneys were at him. I'm going, I'm 48, right? Even if Collins had food poisoning when he was 31, he'd still feel better than I do. Okay, so would you please, would you please stop with the old, he was an idiot and he, he was drunk and he was all this. He had a meeting that night at half nine with Sean Hales to negotiate the peace settlements with the anti-treaty side. All of this stuff we've been taught through history is absolute rubbish. The main thing I find from the whole thing, having done the show 50 or 60 times, there's no evidence. There's no ballistics, there's no forensics, there's nothing. It's like it never happened. A guy emailed me one time and said, there was no ambush. My grandfather was there. He said there was no ambush. So what the hell happened? How did 30 men go into the Valley of Death and only one comes out dead and he's the most important man in Irish history? It's a really mysterious thing. And, you know, it's funny, Dave, I know you're familiar with Croatia. This guy was Tito. This guy was Ataturk in Turkey. Can you imagine eight months into his reign, he dies and nobody wants to talk about it? The Yugoslavs and the Turks would be all over the place trying to find out what happened to their leader. You know, it's interesting you talk about Ataturk. I won't get sidetracked, but I've, I've always thought that's exactly who Collins was. He was our Ataturk. 100%. He had the same ideas. He was scientific. He was future orientated. He was pragmatic. He was a man who understood what the problems of the society were. He was going to confront them. He was going to recast the entire country. And he was going to do that through the military. Exactly. And he was never going to ever do this idea that, well, I'm not a soldier. Like Ataturk, he was going to still remain a general and do it all the way through from the top down. He was completely a soldier and Collins was a soldier. And it's funny, you know, he assumes commander in chief to end the civil war the minute it starts. I mean, this is the funny thing. He didn't want that to happen. He had to do it, though, or the the British had an army of 6,000 in Dublin. They would have just come in and swept the place again. And he only had an army of 4,000. You see, Collins is always thinking numbers. He's completely about numbers. But the funny thing I always say about Collins is, You'll hear a lot of plumas and rubbish this year about how, ah, well, you know, leave him alone now and don't be digging him up and exhuming him and finding out what happened because that's, that's terribly disrespectful to the dead and everything. Who's the one person who would want to know what happened to Michael Collins? Michael Collins, one of the most forensic, detail-orientated, a man who could run rings around an entire empire from a tiny city, from a tiny country, and actually win. I mean, win some measure of freedom for the first time in 700 years. You think he wouldn't want to know what happened? So my job is to be like Peter Falk in Colombo. You know, I, <laughs> I, come, I even do a song called Bail the Blah, Blah, Blah at the end, where I say, here's all the things. I'm setting it out for you again. But all of this stuff you've been hearing is rubbish. And I leave the stage and I come back and go, what did Peter Falk say? Just one more thing. Just one more thing. <laughs> because you've got to come back and you've got to find, we've got to find out what really happened to this man. Because it's actually disrespectful to Dalton or O'Neill and Collins. Because the absolute defamation of Collins himself afterwards was appalling in the newspapers. You know, he was drunk. He was foolhardy, careless about his own safety, ran out on the road, all of this stuff. That's not fair to Michael Collins. This man went from spying in London on high society. His life was in danger from when he was 19 years old to 31. And we now think because of one foolish moment, he's dead and nobody else is. There's something really rotten in, in the state of Ireland. Paddy, I'm going to leave it there. Tour de Force as always, Paddy. The show is on tonight on, where is it on? Give us a quick. I've been touring the show everywhere. It's on tonight in the Pierce Centre on Pierce Street. It's Patrick Pierce's house where he grew up, but they built this amazing theatre behind it and it's a wonderful place and you should go there. And then I'm touring it all. It's going to be like the Tom Green show. It's going to go on and on. This show is not just 
1922 or 2022 focus. This is going to go on and on. Go to paddycullivan.com for tickets. It's a great show. I really enjoy doing it. I love revealing this stuff to people and they really enjoy it too. Brilliant. Cheers, Paddy. Thanks a lot, guys. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So, John, we're going to go live to Killarney. No better place to go than the kingdom to discuss Michael Collins, who's obviously from Cork, and people from Cork will actually uh, hang us out to dry. But Patrick O'Sullivan Green is the author of Crowdfunding the Revolution, The First Door Alone and the Battle for Irish Independence. His second book is called The Revolution at the Waldorf, New York and the Irish War of Independence. It'll be out next month by Eastwood Books. Patrick's from Killarney, County Kerry. He's been an investor for almost 20 years. He's an equity analyst. He's a chartered accountant. And somehow, which we're going to hear now, he got involved in and obsessed by the finance, the economics of Michael Collins. Let's go straight to Killarney. Patrick, how are you? And great to have you on the show. I'm good, David. Looking forward to it. So tell us now, Patrick, all revolutions need to be financed. The Irish revolutionaries in 1918 set up a parallel counter-state to the British government. What did they do on the first day? What was going through their minds? How did they finance everything? So they set up a counter-state government, literally in open defiance of the existing Dublin Castle administration. And like all governments, you need funding. And because it was a counter-state government, you know, they didn't have access to financial institutions, which would only um, fund sovereign governments. They also couldn't use the banking network or the post office network to distribute any funding and to collect subscriptions and, as I said, distribute the marketing material. So what um, they did, and it was led by Michael Collins, who was Minister for Finance, he set up a Ho Chi Minh trail. So what I call a financial Ho Chi Minh trail. So the plan was to raise £250,000 sterling at the time. So what they did was set up this financial Ho Chi Minh trail where couriers distributed the prospectus, the marketing material, the, the receipt books to the four corners of the country. And then the same couriers brought back the subscriptions, coins, notes, uh, checks, brought them to Dublin. Every application, every subscription that was received in Dublin, they issued a receipt, and that was, again, distributed back to the subscribers. All this done under the watch of Dublin Castle. And anyone found with an application, a subscription, marketing material uh, on their person, 
was immediately arrested and many, including elected uh, representatives, were sent to prison. So just that, that's an extraordinary thing. So they've set up a national bank without any of the structures of a national bank. They go to the locals, they say, look, give us two quid, give us five quid, give us a tenner, whatever you have, right? We will send you a receipt. When we win this war, that receipt will be paid back and we will use your money right now to fight this war. So we are crowdsourcing the war. Yeah, uh, that's effectively what they did. And it was a very professional operation. You know, we have a myth that Michael Collins ran his finance department and, you know, ran an intelligence department from the back of a bicycle where nothing could be further from the truth. It was an extremely professional operation, including even the the marketing of of the funding. So they took out full page newspaper advertisements until the newspapers were suppressed for publishing the details of the prospectus. They issued 400,000 copies of the prospectus, 3 million promotional leaflets. You know, these are big numbers. Collins addressed customized letters to 50,000 prominent supporters. So every, this couldn't be done without, you know, a professional team. And, you know, that's the one thing you know, Collins did. So Collins was surrounded by guys, people like Dahi O'Donoghue, who was a former civil servant, bowler hat wearing, suit wearing, cigar smoking <laughs> guy who, you know, he avoided arrest because he, uh, you know, at one stage he's sitting in a train with a bag full of money, but he's in the first class carriage smoking a cigar and in his full uh, business regalia. Sounds so, like John Davis. But but I I love this idea. So all through, because what we learn in history is they set up the Sinn Féin courts. They set up a parallel administration. We never learn how do they do this? How do they finance it? So they financed it with almost like a ghost bank, a phantom bank that was tapping up supporters of the revolution all around the country. Those supporters were giving cash in return, they were given, in effect, an IOU, which was going to be honored when we won the war. Yes. And tell me then, we win the war. What does Collins do then? Because what I love is the notion of Collins having this totally different vision for the Irish economy and Irish society than anybody else on his side are on the Republican side. Yes, I suppose to, to link into what the, what his vision was for uh, after the war was, you know, you mentioned about the bank. So, you know, they, they set up this funding organization to, to raise the loan. And as well, they set up what was called the National Land Bank. And this was a bank which, during the War of Independence, opened six branches, purchased a second head office, and by the end of the War of Independence had distributed the equivalent of 20 million euros in loans. And this bank was initially set up to provide funds for small farmers and landless laborers to purchase land because there was a risk of more agrarian disruption, which would have taken the focus away and the political capital from the independence fight back to an agrarian fight. So this was their solution. But Collins had a bigger vision for that bank. He wanted it to become a financial center for Ireland to challenge the existing banks, which all had been set up in the 1820s with the, with the Irish Banks Acts when they were passed and Bank of Ireland, the main incumbent, set up in 1783. So Collins set up this new bank. Of course, this was owned by the underground government. So they had to set it up using a dummy corporation and they had to fund it through this dummy corporation. But everything else, the front face of the, of the bank, it was a public-facing bank. 
Now, Collins, you know, said he, he had this vision for this bank. Another member of the, the government, Robert Barton, was a co-founder of the bank and a co-visionary for the bank. And Collins and himself were passionate about this bank and, and, and you know, what it could do once the new state was formed. You know, they envisioned it becoming the state bank. It was effectively a state-owned bank, and it was in really good shape. But what happened was, you know, after the War of Independence, you know, we had the Civil War, and Robert Barton, you know, the main co-founder, went on the anti-treaty side. So he couldn't be involved in the, the running of the bank. And he was a huge loss to the operation. And then Michael Collins is shot. So the two main promoters of this national bank, which was going to be the financial center for Ireland, challenging the incumbent banks, providing loans to farmers and businesses and traders and you know young entrepreneurs, the two promoters were no longer there. Now, it's interesting you talk about entrepreneurs because I'm reading a statement issued by Michael Collins in early August 1922, so a number of weeks before he is assassinated. And he sets out his vision for the country. And one of the first things he says is business can't succeed without capital, so we need a bank. And he said, Irish capital is lying idle in Irish banks. So what he was saying was, not unlike today, capital is trapped in the banks, doing nothing, frankly. And all the while, he said, the engine of the Irish group, he also says that we need to, and this is in contrast to De Valera, he says, we need to attract in foreign ideas, foreign people. He also says, we're going to market a free Ireland. Tell me about this, his marketing campaign. Because yeah. De Valera's idea is we're going to lock ourselves off. And he yeah. said, no, 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 we're going to do something else. Yeah. Collins had a very strong uh, marketing brain. A lot of Collins' messaging resonates with a lot of the issues today, whereas De Valera's mes- messaging has very little relevance to yeah. the country today. And if you look at Collins during the treaty debates, you know his view was, he, he saw some people were fighting for the dead generation and for the, the future generation, whereas Collins was fighting for his generation. And as he said, he, you know, he asked his opponents, have we any duty to the present generation? And Collins was one of that young generation. So, you know, before 1916, Collins was in London. He's 24 years of age. He's a young person looking for opportunity. This, he's incredibly ambitious. He couldn't fulfill his ambition in Ireland, like many today. He emigrated. He went to London. And London wouldn't work for him either. He started off in a, a blind alley position in the civil service, then moved to a minor post in the stockbrokers, then as a business clerk in a branch of an American bank. And none of these fulfilled his ambition. So he said, I'm going to America. And I can go there under advantageous circumstances with the one thing I can get that I want, a fair chance to get ahead. But then fortunately for Ireland and for the the younger generation in Ireland, Collins was persuaded to return home on the proposition there was going to be radical change. And that radical change was going to be the Easter Rising. And Collins wasn't fighting for, you know, this mythical republic. Collins was fighting for opportunities for himself and his generation. And, And the only way they could do that was breaking the colonial glass ceiling that still existed in Ireland. And that glass ceiling was, you know, the political, social and economic control was in the hand of an establishment, Catholic and Protestant. And the only way a Cork country boy could get on in Ireland was if there was that radical change. Well, it's interesting you say this. I've always believed that the 1916 
wasn't so much a fight between the Brits and the Irish as a certain type of Irish against another type of Irish, that basically the Brits had gone in their head by 1916. They'd set up lots and lots of schools in the late 19th century that were going to create an establishment Catholic class that was going to deal with Britain as an inferior, still within the orbit of dominion status. And I've always felt that the revolution was more Christian brother boys saying, hold on a second, if we're going to get our own country, we want to run the place. Not these sort of posh boys in the posh schools in Dublin. And I think that's exactly what Collins was doing. He was saying, hold on a second, this is much bigger than just us versus the Brits. This is actually us versus the Brits, but also what are we going to do with the place when we get it? What are we going to do with the country when we get it? I mean, if you read that piece, he says, fascinating, he says, he says like taxation when it hinders must be adjusted. Okay. So he said his idea wasn't tax everything like a socialist. He also says, and it's extraordinary in this piece, he says that we should avoid state socialism. So what he was, as you say, was an entrepreneur, a marketer, a guy with an outside vision, a guy who knew you needed capital. You had to raise capital. You couldn't frighten it away. You had to bring it back in. And his vision for Ireland was totally at odds with what went after him. Yeah, he, he, he saw a united Ireland becoming a possibility through equitable taxation and uh, flourishing trade. And on that basis unionists would need no persuasion to come into a united Ireland. Actually, that's the final sentence of these set of notes that he wrote in 22, which is amazing because he basically said, yeah, he said exactly that, that if we get this right, there's no need for partition. But if we get this wrong, then partition, he more or less said, will will stay the course. But in terms of your understanding, you've written the book, you've researched it all. Do you think the Michael Collins that Irish people and, of course, international people know is only half the story. Yeah, I, I don't think the, the true Michael Collins is is really understood. Um, you know, there's a huge amount of resource put into his military background, intelligence, his attitude to the treaty, his stance in the civil war, his stance on partition. But in the end, Collins wasn't fighting for anything theoretical. You know, one of my favorite quotes, which I learned after I wrote the book, was written by a journalist just after he died. He said, Collins didn't love Ireland in theory. He loved Ireland in practice. And that's what what, what he was all about. You know, actually, he's just really fighting in a way for himself. He wanted opportunity. You know, he even wanted at one stage to set up a small business himself. And one of the other things that doesn't get across well enough is things don't just get done. You know, people have to do things. If you want to change something, you have to do it. I mean, when you think about it, it is absolute madness to think of setting up a counter-state government to the Dublin Castle administration controlled by the British Empire. It is an absolute crazy thing to do. It is an absolute crazy thing to take on the position of Minister of Finance without money, without, without anything, without infrastructure, without staff, without a building. It is the height of madness to consider raising $25 million, or sorry, the equivalent of 25 million euros, when you are an underground government and you have been um, the parliament, the national new National Assembly, which you've joined, uh, has been declared a, an illegal entity. And yet he did it all. Yeah. You know, the message really, you know, for Collins is that it's things don't just happen. They have to be done. And we just don't actually hear that story of how things get done enough in his background. I don't think he was a particularly intellectual person. 
but he just knew how to get things done. Thanks be to God. <laughs> enough of them. Patrick, can, can I just ask you, when you're talking about, you know, he was looking for foreign investment, what kind of investment was he looking for in particular? Because that feels like a, a very progressive way of looking at things insofar as what we did in the, in the 1990s, attracting in all, all that foreign investment. Was there a specific plan for that? Or? Yeah, they, they, had, they did a, a very ambitious economic plan covering industrial development, forestry, fisheries. In fact, what is really interesting, in the first two years of the Dáil government, 70% of the expenditure went on economic development activities. And that included setting up the National Land Bank. That included giving loans to fishery co-ops in the west of Ireland to buy boats and set up processing areas. So, you know, the division was there. And, you know, you're talking about yeah. the, the, the money and the capital. So Ireland was starved of capital. And the Irish the financial system was, was, was quite sophisticated at the time. There were seven banks quoted on the Dublin Stock Exchange, but they were banks and financial institutions were investing their funds in short-term financial instruments in, in London and in British government bonds. So no money was going into Irish business. And to be fair, the English trading class didn't want money going into the setting up of competing businesses in Ireland. It made no sense. Also, every item that was exported from Ireland, the very little there was, and every item imported had to go through um, an English port. So there was very restrictive, extremely restrictive trading practices against Ireland. And Collins wanted to release that capital that was in the banks, that was being invested in government bonds and short-term financial instruments and put that into the hands of, uh, of business to implement the very ambitious economic growth plans that this counter-state government had. Oh, it's, ex- it's extraordinary stuff. Thank you so much. We'll, listen, we'll let you go. That's Patrick O'Sullivan Green. And the book is called Crowdfunding the Revolution. You have another one coming up as well, haven't you? Yeah, I have a new book coming out in September called Revolution at the Waldorf, dealing with the uh, De Valera's uh, attempts to raise funding in America for the same counter-state government. Fantastic stuff. But listen, we let you go to the wedding. (laughs) Thank you, David. See you, John. (laughs) You know, what we heard from Patrick there and from Paddy earlier on, it kind of makes me wonder and it kind of makes me question a lot of the stuff that we learned in school about Collins and De Valera and all the rest. We seem to have got more of the De Valera's view of the kind of old romantic island and all that kind of stuff. But that aside, what I didn't quite realize about Collins was, like, we knew that he was a brilliant strategist and a intelligence guy and military guy and all that kind of stuff. But I didn't quite realize how much of an entrepreneur he was and particularly how good he was at marketing. You know, I suppose some of that goes hand in hand anyway. Well, yeah, I think we were just, we've been sold, I think, a view of Collins that accorded with people's perceptions of politics, the civil war, all that malarkey. But what comes across from talking to both Patricks is exactly your point, how modern Collins was. Yeah, He was a modern thinker. He thought about looking at Denmark, looking at Holland, looking at Germany. He thought about what are we going to do what sort of resources do we have? How are we going to finance it? He thought about, as you said, marketing. He thought about running a phantom operation of a second bank. He was not below, as a lot of revolutions were, selling bonds, going out asking people yeah. for money. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and issuing IOUs and saying, we'll, we'll get you back, we'll pay you back. And understanding the international finance system as well. 
Well, he worked, he worked for JP Morgan, you know? Yeah, one, yeah, yeah. one good thing came out of that investment bank, which was Michael <laughs> Collins, because the rest is very dodgy, right? Uh, but also, fascinatingly, if you look at his work, he was obsessed by water power, right? By harnessing the Shannon. So he was seeing the Ardna Krusha electricity station yeah. well before everybody else. He was talking about foreign investors. Interestingly, he says one thing, and I'm going to read from you this, the end of his notes, that these are notes that Collins wrote in 1922 as a rebuttal to De Valera. De Valera was an austerity fetishist, right? He yes. wanted us all to be living hand to mouth, you know, dancing at the crossroads. Be, Molly Maidens and all that. All that sort of, of things. And be, right, be, yeah. be, be basically, he, De Valera's very idea was that poverty was purity. And Collins said, no, on the contrary, he yeah. said, this paper he wrote about the development of Ireland, it's called Building a New Ireland. And he said, the question is, how shall we increase the income of Ireland? That is the question that the government will be obsessed with. So he was saying, look, we're going to win this civil war. We're going to make peace with our enemies. And then what we're going to try to do is we're going to try to figure out how we can actually increase the wealth of the country. He spoke about the bank's not doing the job. He spoke about the insurance companies, which are British-owned, denuding Irish capital. And then he says something about investment, which I think is very interesting, John. I'll quote from it. He said, Ireland will provide splendid opportunities for the investment of Irish capital. And it is for the Irish people to take advantage of these opportunities. If they do not, investors and exploiters from the outside will come in to reap rich profits, which are to be made. So he basically said, look, we have a chance to do this for ourselves. If we don't, the world is open. The way of the world is very, very clear. It's almost Darwinian. And others, investors and exploiters, will come in from the outside. Something we might be aware of these days in terms of what's going on in the property Vulture market. Vulture funds. That's what he was warning against. That's yeah. exactly what he was warning against. And he says, and... He was ahead what, of his time. Yeah, and he says, and what is worse still, they will bring with them all the evils we want to avoid in our new Ireland. We shall hope to see in Ireland industrial conciliation and arbitration taking the place of strikes. So what he was saying there was we will follow the German Rhineland capital model. We won't pit employers against workers. We'll go from conciliation, arbitration, again, miles ahead of his time. Yeah. And he said the workers will share in the ownership and the management of business. So again, he was talking about the German, Dutch, Danish model of economic developments. And then he said a prosperous Ireland will mean a united Ireland. And he concludes... With equitable taxation and flourishing trade, our Northeast countrymen will need no persuasion to come in and share in the healthy economic life of the country. So he was exactly saying- Amazing. It's amazing stuff. This is yeah. all written a hundred years ago and it's all playing out now. And that I think is the phenomenal reality of Michael Collins, which is that this was a man so far ahead of his time, John. And the major question we can't, answer it now is what might have been had he not been assassinated he was 31 yeah he had at least yeah. 40 or 50 years ahead of him to run this place and not only did we not get collins but we got de valera we got 70 years of backwardness the society only began to open up in the 1980s the economy only in the 1990s maybe we could have actually avoided all that while you're there now, I hope you're still enjoying this malarkey because John and I are certainly enjoying it. Thank you very, very much 
to our Patreons. And if you're not a Patreon and you feel like supporting us and you fancy all sorts of exclusive goodies, just go to patreon.com forward slash Dave McWilliams. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's stamps.com code program.